Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. In a Sarajevo cafe, as the map and the political realities were changing in Europe, a group of young researchers formed the European Stability Initiative, a think tank. ESI's role has been to offer policymakers extensive research to inform decision making. This is Colleen Shaddix for the Yale Office of Public Affairs. I'm talking with one of ESI's founders, Verena Knaus. Ms. Knaus is currently a World Fellow, part of Yale's intensive program of academic and leadership training for emerging leaders around the globe. You started ESI in 1999. What was it about that moment that made you say, we have a real opportunity to have an impact here? Well, 1999 was the year when the Kosovo War both began and ended. So when we were sitting in a cafe in Sarajevo in July 99, there was just one month after the end of the Kosovo War. It was also just two months after the announcement of a new European Marshall Plan for the Balkans, which at that time was called the Stability Pact for Southeast Europe. It was an announcement by the German government, and it really looked like Europe is serious about engaging in a different way and with enormous resources in bringing peace and stability to Southeast Europe. The Balkans also in 99 was just four years after one of the most atrocious wars we have seen in Europe waging in Bosnia. A few years before that, there was a war between Croatia and Serbia. So 99 really was an end point and a new window of opportunity to make change happen in terms of European policies towards this region. It's really foreign to Americans thinking of Europe as a whole. The whole idea of the European Union, 27 countries setting common policy, it would call for politicians to have an enormous knowledge base. Do you see ESI as a resource to help them with this new reality? Yes, certainly. And that was also the idea behind setting up a European think tank. The concept of think tank is quite new to Europe. We don't have as many as you have here in the Mm -hmm. United States. And most of them are linked to political parties or certain governments. We wanted to be independent and independent both in our analysis and in our recommendations and in our audience. So we are trying to bring real facts, empirical facts from the ground up to the policy debates taking place in Berlin, Vienna, Paris and Brussels. We ourselves struggle because the European Union is an animal with many, many heads. Mm -hmm. You have the capitals that you have to convince, and each of them have their own national interests. And you have the European Union, the Commission, sitting in Brussels with, again, their own interests and their own priorities. And then in our case, we have all the governments in the region that have their own agendas and their own ideas and priorities. So it is a constant struggle, but we do feel that our empirical research and our policy recommendations and our papers are really contributing facts and uh, help to have a more rational debate about what could be done and what should be done. Which brings me to another question. Uh, Obviously, research is very hard work, but it, it does seem that the harder work would be engaging the policymakers, convincing them that they needed to listen to you. How did you build relationships and credibility in the early days? Well, in the early days, the only thing you can do to really be taken seriously is to be extremely professional Mm -hmm. in your analysis. So every single time we published a paper, um, we were trying to be 150% sure that all our facts are right and that we are really looking at the problem from all the different angles that are possible and taking into account all the different perspectives 
um, and internalize the critique that we would be facing in our internal debates. Mm -hmm. That is why we as ESI, we always work as teams and we spend many, many months on every single paper to make sure that we are credible and truthful. To build trust and relationships with policymakers, diplomats, you just have to reach out and uh, remain committed to not being ideological, being fact-based in your analysis, being independent in your viewpoints. And then over the years, we have succeeded in building up a very strong network that spans the whole European continent, reaches now to the Caucasus, includes the United States, and is both composed of members of civil society, the media, European Commission, commissars, diplomats, prime ministers. And it was really painstaking work from knowing nobody and mm -hmm. being completely unknown to now having a mailing list of 23,000 people that receive our reports, about 2,000 visitors a day to our website, and trying to have a lot of impact by building on this network. Was there a breakthrough moment when you said, ah, they're listening, they've made a much more informed decision than they would have if we hadn't been there? I think I would maybe mention two examples where I felt that our analysis has really helped to change the debate. Um, one example was a big campaign that we launched in 2003. We were teaming up with the Greek presidency of the European Union at the time. Every six months, the EU presidency is changing. And we were really trying to push the agenda that the European Union makes a firm commitment that the Balkans have a future as members of the European Union. Mm -hmm. We were lobbying very hard. We published two papers. We organized conferences in London, in Greece, in the region. We lobbied in Brussels and in all the other capitals. We got the local leaders and governments of the region of Bosnia, Serbia, and Croatia together to send joint letters and to jointly lobby together with us to get the European Union to make that commitment. And in June 2003, at the Thessaloniki summit, the European Union put it down in its conclusions of the Council meeting that the Western Balkans have uh, a clear perspective and all of them can join the European Union when they meet the criteria. Another example was uh, in Kosovo, where nobody really knew how many Serbs lived there and everybody was concerned about helping Serbs return and helping Serbs who still stay there and live there to have a decent life without mm -hmm. fear and with an economic future. And we actually were the first ones in 2004, so five years after the UN came in to govern Kosovo, to find out how many Serbs there are and how many Serbs have left. And our conclusions were published in several papers. And again, we lobbied very hard. And it did change the way the European Union and the donors and the UN viewed the problem. And they also adjusted their policies to the reality on the ground, which is that you still have 130,000 Serbs living in Kosovo today, and maybe only 70,000 who have been displaced and left. And that means that your task to help them return is a different one than was before everybody thought more than 240,000 have left. I'm guessing that was pretty labor-intensive research. What did you do? It was extremely labor-intensive. It involved um, almost counting people mm -hmm. um, to the extent that we collected all the information from schools. We got all the numbers of Serbian primary school students, and that's a very good indication of where Serbs live today mm -hmm. because primary, schools go, primary school children go to the school where they live. So that is an indication of where Serbs are today. We went to all these villages where we had large populations 
experience. We, we met with community leaders, we interviewed businessmen, we interviewed politicians in Kosovo, we interviewed and went through archives um, in Belgrade and in other towns. We went to refugee camps in Serbia, we went to Montenegro, we checked our facts back in the UN, um, both in Kosovo and also in New York. So it was a process that took many, many months. Um, and in the end, it was only a 30-page paper, but because the facts were well-researched, right. it was a very powerful argument. Right. And I, I'd also like to go back to your work helping the Balkans be eligible to join the EU. Without that, did you see a danger that there could be two Europes, sort of a have and have not Europe? Yes, there is. And that is one of the issues we lobby very hard for. Um, as part of the 2003 campaign, we produced a map which shows Europe. And then in the Balkans, it shows a white spot, a mm -hmm. black hole. And uh, we were warning policymakers in Europe that we are creating a ghetto inside Europe. Especially now that Bulgaria and Romania have joined, there is really this hole in the middle um, that comprises Bosnia, Albania, Serbia, Kosovo, Macedonia, countries that are so close to Vienna and so close to Sofia, but still in terms of integration very far. But the European Union, I think, has come round to the idea um, that it's just a question of time and political commitment. And I hope, and we are still hopeful, that our contribution as ESI mm -hmm. with analysis will help to speed up this process because we are committed and we really believe that the earlier these countries get on a serious track of EU integration, they will follow the paths of Slovenia, Estonia and other countries who have turned around their economies successfully and are now stable democracies. And what's the argument for the more affluent European nations that they need to care? Well, one is um, economic, let's say. Um, it is in our interest because we are building up markets for mm -hmm. our own consumer goods. And one of the countries, for example, that benefited most during the last wave of enlargement was Austria. All the Austrian banks and small enterprises are investing in Croatia, in Slovenia, in Czech Republic, Slovakia. It's like a whole new market just outside the door. But it's not just that, it's a market also that follows our rules, mm -hmm. that adopts our laws, our standards, our criteria. So making business is extremely easy. That is also, of course, a big argument in favor of Turkey joining the European Union. Right. It's a market of 70 million people, enormous potential, and a bridgehead into a region, the Middle East and the Caucasus, where Europe is still very distant. There's also a political argument. If we are surrounded and have as our partners stable democracies that share our values, that look at the world from a similar perspective as we do, then we are stronger in our efforts to fight for human rights around the world. We are stronger in our efforts to promote democracy in other unstable regions. So we are also benefiting directly in that way. Socially also, having a crisis region next door right. means that when the crisis erupts, you have the problem as well. And the refugee crisis of the Bosnian wars and Kosovo showed very clearly that we cannot shut our eyes. We cannot shut our borders. When there is a war and there are refugees, we have to deal with it. So the more we extend the zone of prosperity and stability in Europe, including Turkey, and even pushing further than that, mm -hmm. the better it is for every single country and every single person living in the European Union. We started off talking about Kosovo, which is, of course, very much in the news again. The United States is supporting independence there. This is upsetting Russia and Serbia. What do you think can or should happen in Kosovo? 
I think it's very clear that the only solution will be an independent Kosovo. Um, and the reason for that is that the situation and the relationship between Serbia and Kosovo has so much deteriorated over the past 20 years. And the war and the conflict in 99 and the 10 years of repression that went before mm -hmm. have made it almost impossible that these two countries and leaderships can see eye to eye and cooperate as it is today. I think it is a lot of a lot to do with security. A lot of Albanians in Kosovo are afraid that any return or remaining within Serbia would mean a return to what they have experienced in the 90s mm -hmm. and the wars. But I'm very confident that with an independent Kosovo and with both Serbia and Kosovo joining the European Union in the long run, these countries will be very good neighbors. And just as we have seen Croatia and Serbia reaching out to each other and becoming partners, economic partners, mm -hmm. and also voting for each other in the European Song Contest every single year, <laughs> I'm hopeful. So it is just a question of moving on. And especially in the case of Kosovo, the longer we delay the more time we lose to focus on the real issues, which have to do with economic development. And any more delay of the status just means that we keep on talking politics without thinking about how people live and what their real daily needs are, where they can find a job, how they can send their children to school, and how they can fight with the poverty they are facing. And the economy has ever obviously never recovered in Kosovo from the war. What, what needs to happen to bring stability to Kosovo? Well, again, um, it's been quite amazing right after the war. There has been a quick boom in the post-war years. But a lot of that, of course, was driven by construction. So it was post-war reconstruction, and it was financed by international donor money that was pouring into Kosovo. The more long-term challenge for Kosovo is to transform its rural economy. Still today, 60% of the population live in rural areas. Mm. It's a subsistence farm economy. Um, that is not competitive and can't compete in the European Union. Another big challenge concerns human resources, education. Um, a very small part of the population has university degrees. 15% um, of women in rural areas do not know how to read or write. That is a big challenge for the future. Another big issue, of course, remains again how Kosovo can be a competitive economy inside the European Union. And as, as of today, Kosovo still faces regular electricity blackouts. Wow. Private businesses, you know, their operations are shut down two hours with electricity, three hours without. Mm -hmm. In such a situation, it is very difficult to compete with high-tech economies like Germany or Spain. We, we talked at the beginning about ESI having a, a very objective perspective, which is somewhat unusual for think tanks here. Do you see that kind of model working elsewhere? Yes, I do. And we have ourselves, as ESI, tried to encourage local institutes in the Balkans to follow our model and to become think tanks and to challenge and try to change the debates in their own countries. Mm -hmm. And since 2004, we have helped set up a new think tank in Kosovo that has been established and you know, is taken very serious. There is now two new think tanks in Macedonia. There is one new think tank in Bosnia. There's another one just forming in Serbia. And there's one more in Albania. And we are working very closely with them to help them do the same mix of analysis mm -hmm. and policy advocacy that we at ESI have tried. 
We also now expanding to the Caucasus, where we're trying to also encourage young people in Armenia, Azerbaijan and Georgia to not sit back and be frustrated with their own politicians, but to take the initiative and say, we want to change it. And all we need is a group of friends, an idea, a commitment, and then we can go out, do the research and try to challenge some of the policy debates and change them with new input and new ideas. What brought you to the World Fellows Program? What are you hoping to take back to Europe with you? I'm hoping to take back a new perspective um, and a network of people that will help our work and that will help other causes around the world that we as you know, my generation mm-hmm. will have to deal with, face and, uh, and try to change. Um, what brought me here in the first place is really an old colleague from Kosovo who ran the UNDP operation in Kosovo who nominated me. So out of the blue, I got an email saying, do you want to be nominated for the World Yale, the World Fellows Program uh-huh. at Yale? And I said, of course, certainly. Um, and being here now, I realized that the real asset of the program is this enormous network that comes not only with the fellows in my year, but also with all the other fellows from the previous years and the whole university community and all the people that are linked and affiliated to Yale, which is really a powerhouse of new ideas and 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 change. So you see a network, a kind of a, a worldwide think tank. Yes, I mean, there are so many issues that are very similar in many different countries. And I think it's always important to keep looking beyond your immediate backyard. Um, and maybe the methodology of ESI, the way we work, is exportable to Asia, to Africa, Um, It has worked in the Balkans and in Turkey and the Caucasus. Why not elsewhere? Um, Maybe the idea of independent analysis is something that Egypt could need. And, you know, there are so many issues around the world where our experiences and uh, our research might just help to look at issues differently. Thank you. We've been talking with Verena Knaus, co-founder of the European Stability Initiative and a World Fellow at Yale University. To learn more about the World Fellows Program, visit yale.edu slash worldfellows.